Hello, welcome to the Burn Bag Podcast. My name is Andre Gonoela. I'm being joined by my co-host Ryan Rosenthal. And today we're so glad to have Nilanti Samarinayake, who is the Director of Strategy and Policy Analysis at the Center for Naval Analyses, here with us. So at CNA, she leads a team of analysts who study a range of national strategy and military policy issues that include nuclear security, alliance management, naval strategy, Arctic policy, and non-traditional security. Her research has focused on the study of U.S. alliances and partnerships globally, and she has looked at the role of small states in what we have now seen as this era of great power competition. Before she was at CNA, uh, Nilanti did complete a fellowship at the National Bureau of Asian Research, where she taught, where she looked into Sri Lanka's deepening economic, military, and diplomatic ties with China. She is the author of the book Raging Waters, China, India, Bangladesh, and the Brahmaputra River Politics. And her analysis has been featured in The Diplomat, War on the Rocks, and The Hindustan Times. And she has appeared in Al Jazeera, The New York Times, and Foreign Policy. Nilanti, we're so glad to have you here today. We're going to be talking a bit about the Indian Ocean and U.S. security strategy in that region and more. So thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for the invitation to be here. Nilanthia, we appreciate you being with us today. The Indian Ocean uh, is quite an interesting area of the world and South Asian security is particularly important. So let's kind of begin by orienting ourselves in the Indian Ocean. Is it, is it India's ocean? Does India essentially dictate policy in this region? Uh, are they the hegemonic power in South Asia, at least with regards to maritime affairs? How would you kind of characterize uh, the, the situation in the region? It's a good question. Uh, so in terms of uh, India dictating policy or the rules of the region, I, I would say no, uh, because it, it is open seas, high seas, and there are international laws uh, in effect. So I, I would say no to that. Uh, and also, if you look at the, the recent U.S. freedom of navigation operation that was very controversial and uh, conducted within India's exclusive economic zones, that, uh, that really highlights the fact that there are differing interpretations of the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea and, and different uh, uh, approaches to, to international law and the rules of the region, uh, as you mentioned. Um, but yes, I, I would say that India is still a, a major power in the region with its own prerogatives about its security and expectations about its smaller neighbors' ties with great powers like China, like the United States. And India also has prerogatives uh, about what it wants to see in terms of regional architecture and institutions like the Indian Ocean Rim Association and the Indian Ocean Ocean Naval Symposium or IONS. So you mentioned those great powers such as the United States and China. You mentioned that freedom of navigation uh, operation that took place. So what exactly does the influence of these external, external actors such as China and the U.S., what does that influence look like for countries that are actually in the Indian Ocean region? Well, I think it takes the shape along various dimensions. There's there's a lot of history. These are China and the U.S. They're they're both extra regional great powers. So uh, certainly India has a, an an interest in how extra regional powers interact with smaller countries in the region. But in terms of from their perspectives, uh, these countries are mostly developing countries. So uh, China and the U.S. have been very important uh, developmental partners to them in terms of financing infrastructure and connectivity, 
Uh, the U.S. has been a, a very important trading partner, especially for South Asian countries. The U.S. is Sri Lanka's top exporting partner. Uh, also, uh, the U.S. is number two for Maldives. And I, I would argue that uh, being an exporting partner, that's that's really critical because that's a way to to generate income from these countries' perspectives. So I think both, uh, both the U.S. and China have, have played a, a very important role in, in terms of these countries building their economic security and futures. So Nalantha, you mentioned the economic importance of this region, particularly from the trade perspective. But when we look kind of outside of that, are there other areas that are strategically important, whether it be military, political, uh, particularly with this region? I mean, I'm sure that the Sri Lanka can play a role and the Maldives as well. And we, of course, know the the political military importance of India. um, But could you kind of uh, elaborate on that? Sure. Uh, I would argue that India is really been the focus of U.S. policy in the in Asia for like the last twenty years, and essentially cultivating India as a strategic partner to the United States. So it's it's taken a long time, but you're you're really seeing that the fruits of of all that labor. Uh, culminating now in India is considered a major defense partner to the United States. And it's also signed the U.S.'s defense foundational agreements uh, with regard to logistics and communication security and others. So that that relationship has really uh, ascended uh, very strongly, particularly under the Modi administration in India. I would say with the smaller countries, like you mentioned, Sri Lanka and Maldives, those have been a bit more difficult, I think, for the U.S. to develop those close relationships with because, in part, just due to uh, the, the Cold War and India's, uh, India's of course, its, it's non-alignment philosophy, but also some difficulties in terms of the, the Soviet-U.S. rivalry in the Cold War and India's deep relations with the Soviet Union. So there's a lot of historical baggage associated with that. So I think when you consider that, it, it's, it's even that much more significant how deeply and how far U.S.-India strategic relations have progressed. But I think you can see that uh, perhaps there's been some cost in terms of the U.S.'s strategic relationships with some of India's smaller uh, neighboring countries like like Sri Lanka and Maldives, where where you don't see uh, really, you you don't see as advanced or developed uh, defense and security relationship with those countries. So, so we're talking about these relationships, and I guess in the mainstream, in the media and so on, we always sort of hear about, you know, the U.S. security presence in the South China Sea, in the East China Sea, and sort of on East Asia, and certainly in the Persian Gulf. But what does the U.S. presence or posture actually look like in the Indian Ocean region? Sure. It really, it spans the entire region. So you have uh, a U.S. naval base in sort of the, the western part in Bahrain. Um, you have a, a naval support facility in Diego Garcia at, at the center of the Indian Ocean. And then the U.S. also has uh, access in Singapore. So really spanning the entire Indian Ocean. And, and there's also uh, access to, to air bases or, across uh, Indian Ocean countries. So it's it's the U.S. is still an extra regional power, so it, it doesn't have the benefit of having territory in the region, but it, it does have access spanning the entire region. So with the, the U.S. being an, an extra territorial power or extra regional power uh, there, uh, we have this 
U.S.-China rivalry, this U.S.-China competition that is certainly heating up. And, and so in the Indian Ocean, in the Bay of Bengal in particular, is it going to become increasingly significant in this rivalry? We, as Andre mentioned, we talked about the South China Sea, the East China Sea, uh, but is this Indian Ocean region going to be a hotspot for U.S.-China competition? Uh, it's always hard to talk about the future, but uh, <laughs> looking into my crystal ball, uh, I, I think, you know, assuming the current trends hold, I, I don't think the Indian Ocean is going to be uh, a hotspot. I, that, that may be a, a controversial claim, but um, I think just for both countries, there are priorities in the Pacific and so really essentially rendering the Indian Ocean to be uh, of, of less uh, importance. Um, not that it's unimportant. The Indian Ocean is still very important. And I think in this case, you can actually argue that both the U.S. and China have converging interests in this region, essentially keeping the sea lanes open, keeping the region stable. Um, and, you know, just essentially the, the role of this region to the global economy and the, the passage of, of cargo. Um, we saw the, the recent news about the Suez uh, a, a block, um, what, what that, that has done uh, for the region and, and the, the impacts on trade. So uh, I, I, don't, I don't necessarily see, just assuming the current trends hold, that, that it will be this hotspot like, like we are seeing in the South China Sea or the East China Sea, where, where there are actual you know, territorial disputes and, and much, uh, much more hotly contested issues. So Nilanthi, I sort of want to dig into the uh, the issue area, the country of Sri Lanka, and sort of China's interactions with Sri Lanka. So for our audience, Sri Lanka is an island nation state uh, located right below India, sort of seen as this, quote unquote, this gateway between the Persian Gulf and Southeast Asia, at least for trade purposes. So, I mean, China's been working to bolster its presence in the Indian Ocean region. It's made significant inroads politically and economically with Sri Lanka. And some folks have pointed out that Sri Lanka's relationship with China is an example of what they term as debt trap diplomacy. And they have point, pointed to this case uh, in the Hambantota port, which is a port located in southern Sri Lanka that China was able to obtain for a 99-year lease after the Sri Lankan government struggled to pay back billions of dollars in loans to China. So does China's holding of this port strategically located on Sri Lanka's southernmost edge and therefore open to these wide swaths of the Indian Ocean, uh, does this actually harbor a security risk, pun not intended? Uh, so I think that is a common view. Uh, there, there's a lot to unpack there. So um, like you mentioned, like Sri Lanka struggled to pay back uh, loans and servicing the debt. Yes, but not necessarily loans to China. So that essentially Sri Lanka has had a problem with debt just for decades in the making. And actually what, what they're paying back, they're, they're serving, servicing debt on loans that are mostly to like multilateral institutions like the World Bank. Um, so, you know, that, that's not to say that loans to China will become a much more salient issue down the road. But in terms of the, the crisis that Sri Lanka finds itself in now and, and in recent years, it's they're, they're still trying to uh, essentially update their their strategies they they they, be, they become so used to uh, receiving loans at concessional rates and the the more you increase in terms of economic status you kind of lose uh, access to the 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 loans at the concessional rates you had once become accustomed to so um you know that 
There's this talk about debt trap diplomacy, but, but I think it's more related to the middle income trap and really Sri Lanka's inability to update its debt management strategies in the context of its growing status economically and not really adjusting to the fact that it can't expect to receive loans at the same concessional rates that it used to. Uh, the second point I would add is this issue about China's holding of this port. I mean, you know, Sri Lanka offered up this lease because it really wanted to inject some life into the port. So it's uh, it, the the port itself is still owned by Sri Lanka, um, the government, um, but this joint venture essentially has operate operations. So it's 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 a Chinese led joint venture, and they're they're responsible for operations. So I I think there's been a conflation in terms of actual ownership of the port versus the the operations. But you know, Sri Lanka ha- has agency. They entered into this. Uh, deal willingly. Um, they, they got like a billion dollars, you know, in return. Um, but, you know, that said, you know, China, uh, you know, China and these Chinese entities, part of this, uh, as part of this uh, agreement, I mean, they, you know, they asked for 99 years on the lease like that, that seems really excessive, especially when you look at some of the other deals in the region. So, and, and why is this? It's because Sri Lanka was having uh, very serious economic difficulties and insufficient foreign exchange reserves. Uh, so then, it, you know, I think it, it also, even though, you know, it wasn't like Sri Lanka paying the loans back to China, it wasn't that situation. But at the same time, I think you can argue China as as a rising great power. Did, did these organizations really need to, um, you, know, hold, you, know, you know, do this deal only under the terms of a 99-year lease with this country that was clearly struggling financially? So Nilanthi, this raises a lot of questions. I guess the first being for me is how do the the Sri Lankan people actually view China's investment uh, in their own country? Right. Of course, from the the more Western point of view, we have these concerns of quote unquote debt trap diplomacy, or maybe a big country like China taking advantage, or at least maybe injecting their own investment for maybe economic reasons, maybe military reasons. And so I guess the one the the first question is right: how do the Sri Lankan people view it? And then secondly. What do you think China intends to do with these ports? Is it primarily for trade or is there maybe some future militarization? Uh, yeah. What, how do you view it? Well, I think there's a lot of suspicion about China, just looking at what China is doing in the South China Sea, for example, or, or elsewhere. So um, that kind of assertiveness, I think, uh, quite logically, people have questions about what, what China intends to do in, in their own country, whether it's Sri Lanka or or other Indian Ocean countries. Uh, I mean, these these are commercial deals. So, uh, like Hamantota, for example, um, you know, there's. It, it's not like there's a, a military dimension to that agreement. It's essentially that that agreement was to uh, inject some life into this port that is underperforming. That uh, you can see clearly the effort on the Sri Lankan government's part to. Uh, it like to move its southern naval command to Hambantota region and defend the port uh, from you know externally internally. So at least I think you have, need to look at the host nations at, for the sites of all of these Chinese projects and see w- what measures are they uh, actually taking w- with regard to these these projects. I mean, I, I'm not a China analyst, so I, I don't know what China intends with these projects, but I think it's important to. Th- th- 
it's important to look at the smaller states and consider the agency that they have there. I think I think that tends to get overlooked. So what about the Maldives? So it's another island nation located in the Indian Ocean. And I think you recently actually said that the Maldives is in quote, a worse situation economically than Sri Lanka. It has a smaller economy and a larger portion of its foreign debt is to China than Sri Lanka's is. So could China potentially sort of you know, make similar investments similar to what they did with the port in Sri Lanka with the Maldives? Is there a similarity in that relationship or is it going to be a bit different? Well, Maldives has a very different relationship with India than Sri Lanka has. Um, That defense relationship between Maldives and India is very close Whereas I think you've you've seen more a more willingness on the part of the Sri Lankans to kind of uh, deviate from India's India's preferences in terms of security. I mean, although ultimately I still think both of these countries still uh, still acknowledge essentially India's dominance in the region. Um, but then in terms of economics, uh, Sri Lanka just I think because of the sea lanes and the the historical port infrastructure there, uh, they're, they're just they're. They have a lot of experience in terms of major port operations along the the, the sea lanes. Whereas with Maldives, um, it's there there isn't that major infrastructure there. Uh, so th- there there have to be a lot of work to actually build that up from from scratch. Uh, it's, but it's it's very basic there. Whereas in Sri Lanka, Colombo port is is really uh, usually ranks within the the top one or two in terms of busiest ports in South Asia. So I think just Sri Lanka and Maldives are very different in, in terms of the, the their their level of development or, or progression toward being able to sustain ma- major major shipping operations in, in that part of the Indian Ocean. Nalanthi, I want to dig into India's relationship with its neighbors a bit more. But before I do so, what has U.S. policy looked like towards these smaller Indian Ocean nations, right? We have, you know, Sri Lanka and, and the Maldives. Um, there are others, of course, that we, we could mention. But former Secretary of State Pompeo visited both of these countries uh, and shortly before he actually ended his tenure in the Trump administration. And so under the Biden administration, do you think that the U.S. is, is going to invest in the relationships with with this region more particularly you know outside of india but these smaller island nations will will they be crucial in our south asian policy i think they'll be important essentially in fleshing out the policy i think it has been focused so much on india for really the past two decades um and 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 the success is showing it basically all, all the fruits of that effort uh, i i think Turning more attention toward the the smaller countries would would help essentially build out on that larger uh, policy, uh, the Indo Pacific strategy. That was a term used in the previous administration, and, and it looks like the new Biden administration is continuing to to move out on on its its effort and the priority of of that region for for U.S. interests. Uh, I think the the training and the economics is is really important just for the fact that a country like Sri Lanka uh, having the U.S. as its number one export partner, th- this is how the Sri Lanka can really generate national income is through its exports. And especially now after COVID, COVID's really exacerbated an already very difficult, challenging set of financial circumstances for Sri Lanka, also Maldives as well. So I think that the U.S. just essentially being that that export market 
for uh, Sri Lanka and like number two for Maldives is I, I think that that really helps set these countries up for, for success. So I think that's something that maybe doesn't get as much attention as it should, because these are still developing countries that, that have national development goals that they want to meet. You mentioned Secretary Pompeo and essentially the diplomatic angle. Uh, he was talking about uh, essentially uh, opening up a U.S. embassy in Maldives itself, whereas the embassy in Colombo, Sri Lanka, has uh, had responsibilities for Maldives. So, so that would be a step forward in terms of advancing the U.S.'s diplomatic relationship with Maldives. So uh, expanding that, not only just economics, but also diplomacy. Um, also, I think in terms of development finance, there is this a relatively new International Development Finance Corporation. So if the U.S. could, could do more of that essentially in, in the region uh, in terms of you know, helping provide uh, finance for like uh, advancing infrastructure and connectivity, this is something that the countries in the region are, are very much focused on because they, they see increased connectivity is really their, their key to advancing their, their national economies. Uh, I think that would be well received as well. So I just want to ask a follow-up that sort of focuses more on the domestic politics of Sri Lanka and the Maldives. So at least like when I read like some, you know, some of our Western media outlets, I sort of see, you know, these descriptors assigned to the Sri Lankan government, for example, as being quote unquote pro-China and like say the opposition parties being more quote unquote pro-Western. Is this an accurate sort of descriptor of uh, their quote unquote, like their alliances or their, their like, uh, their like preferred great powers? And uh, how does sort of that domestic political situation really play into, you know, their relationships with the U.S. and their relationships with China. Like, if one party comes in, will you know one country's relationship sort of go down? What does that look like in reality? I think that that is a view that is commonly heard, but I think when when you actually look at small states and how they operate in international affairs, they, they they can't afford to pick one country and exclude another. They just don't have the capability to do that. So I like you point out the case of this of Sri Lanka. Like there's there's always this sense of oh the Rajapaksa regime is pro-China and then the opposition is pro-India. But then we talked about the Hamanthoda agreement that was not concluded under the Rajapaksa regime. That was concluded by the opposition and China has a 99 year lease now on, on that port. So it's I feel like there, there's an attempt to kind of put uh, political regimes into boxes and align it with particular great powers. But I think that the story is is more complex there. Uh, during the Rajapaksa regime, uh, very close defense ties and security ties with India. So I, I think some some of those uh, those factors get get overlooked. And I think sort of this desire to just assign like political regimes to big powers. So if we dig into this a bit more, I think the 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 Indian Sri Lankan relationship is a particularly interesting one, just because of course China has an interest in the country, and India certainly does as well. And so uh, you, you said that you know maybe that the current uh, government is not necessarily quote unquote pro China, but when we kind of look at this, is is the Indian government and the Modi government in particular making an effort to maybe counter Chinese influence, whether it be economic or political, in China, just because China, of course, has over, over time has had more and more influence in the country? That's a good question, Ryan. Uh, so essentially, I think India doesn't have the capacity to give as much as 
China does. I mean, very, very few countries do, honestly, when you look at the, the largesse that, that China can throw at these countries. So it's, uh, I think it's, it's hard for India to kind of step into that role. Um, and right, yeah, I think the, the current regime is in Sri Lanka is looking a lot to China because not only did it have a, a really uh, bad set of economic circumstances before in terms of insufficient foreign exchange reserves, but it's gotten even worse with COVID. And so now they're looking to China to help them uh, out with that situation in, in terms of uh, more loans. So it, it's it's like China just ha- has that largesse. And so Sri Lanka is looking at that. Um, but that said, I think India, where India has an edge is in terms of its defense and strategic ties with Sri Lanka. Just the amount of uh, exercises that go on between the the two countries, the level of training relationships, military training relationships, and information sharing. It's just a lot deeper. Uh, It it just... China's defense relationships with Sri Lanka just just doesn't compare. So I think if, as long as India continues with that, I think that that's kind of the uh, the major uh, kind of the, the, in terms of the strategic balance of the region. That that is, is very much in, in in India's favor because it certainly can't compete with China when it comes to this issue of capacity. So, so when we talk about sort of like the idea of like a foreign policy bandwidth and like, you know, like focuses for India, is the is like this extension of influence in the Indian Ocean region with these smaller neighbors, is it like one of the most pressing issues or is it sort of, you know, not as highly prioritized as dealing with, for example, domestic turmoil or more direct security challenges such as China, you know, with the Ladakh situation that went on at the border and Pakistan? I think actually China has helped augment India's threat perceptions. And as a result, India is paying a lot more attention to the Indian Ocean region and its neighbors than it did before. So we've actually seen India conduct a lot more capacity building efforts and engagements with smaller Indian Ocean countries. India is very proud of its COVID relief and response going all the way out to the the Western Indian Ocean. Um, So I think certainly what was going on with the border with China definitely helped helped take India into uh, a direction of even increased attention to its region. Um, And then and and the other thing is India has this program now of mission, the Indian Navy has this program of mission-based deployments, where essentially they're they're in all they have they're in all corners of the Indian Ocean. They're always operating 24-7. So th- that's been another movement, uh, not necessarily with regard to its neighbors, but with regard to its operating posture in, in the Indian Ocean. And what drove that? Certainly, China is is the the catalyst to that. Yeah. So you you did certainly say that China has helped augment this new like Indian focus on the Indian Ocean region. And uh, just to follow up to that, because I mean, like, if I was in the Indian government as a foreign policymaker, at first glance, like you know, I'd see Pakistan up there, China up there, and then sort of seeing this Chinese influence with Sri Lanka, you know, down south. So I guess, like, at least to the casual observer. It might seem like India might feel surrounded, I guess. So, like, how does India actually view, uh, like, the Chinese uh, relationship with Sri Lanka, uh, considering that India has also made investments in Sri Lanka as well? 
Yeah, I think this is this is consistent with India's history. It, it it doesn't like it. It you know it does not like the idea of being encircled and having a competitor develop its ties with its neighboring countries. The interesting thing is China's in this role now, but it, it used to be the U.S. Like if you look at the '80s, uh, India had threat perceptions of the U.S. and and even earlier in the Cold War, of course. Uh, so there, it's kind of interesting to think about extra regional powers on the rise in the Indian Ocean. Um, so China very much occupies that status now. Um, But it's been interesting to see India, the the growth in its capabilities, not only military, but also economic. And and it's really asserting more of a leadership role in the region and uh, even, you know, trying to ascend on the global stage. So, um, you know, I think I think this is this is part this is part of that effort of India's rising, rising leadership and really just trying to demi- demonstrate its leadership in the Indian Ocean region, um, like officially expand its focus. Uh, you, you look at like the 2015 maritime strategy and even the, the entire uh, body of the Indian Ocean region had not been a, a, an area of primary interest until the 2015 maritime strategy. So re- India is also going through this process of evolving its priorities in, in the region strategically. So India is essentially for the past few years, developing its capabilities, demonstrating diplomatic leadership in the region and displaying its operational reach to all, all corners of the Indian Ocean. So we've been kind of viewing this in the the lens of politics and military and economics, but now I want to bring in ethno-religious kind of lens over the region, just because that adds many complications to the politics of the region. And so I guess the the Nalanthi, the question is, is what is the line walking that needs to be had when you're having these ethno-religious tensions, right? Of course, we have in India, it's, a, it's certainly a domestic issue. Uh, of course, with uh, with Pakistan, you have this, this Muslim country that comes into con- con- conflict with India. But what about these smaller states? Are, are, ethnic, are ethno-religious tensions uh, a tension point that these countries uh, try to express in their relations with, with their larger neighbors? I think it's been a topic of concern. You saw this recently in Bangladesh with protests uh, over um, Prime Minister Modi. There was that concern about um, Hindu nationalism in India. Um, certainly, there's there's concern about Sri Lanka and the leadership that has come in and essentially uh, leaving that UN Human Rights Council, that entire process, and this this issue about the the reconciliation and the management of the civil war over a decade ago, and then the what what remains to be done in terms of reconciliation and devolution of powers to the ethnic minority in Sri Lanka. So th- there's definitely um, there's the Rohingyas in Myanmar. Um, so there are a lot of, of issues where, you know, India, India certainly has interests and can play a role if it wants to. It certainly has historically. Um, but it's I, I think it's it's all still unfolding right now, because I think China, that sort of the going beyond the ethnic issues, China as a great power competitor is a complicating factor to that. So you alluded to earlier India's uh, longtime policy of non-alignment. And, you know, we've talked about sort of U.S. interests in the Indian Ocean region. So how willing is India 
to cooperate with you know these U.S. security goals in the Indian Ocean, given this history of non-alignment and you know this idea that they want to maintain their quote unquote their autonomy. India, I think, has come a long way in terms of its desire to uh, be convergent with the U.S. I think that there's always going to be the the limits to that because India insists on what it, what it calls strategic autonomy. Um, but you know, ultimately, it comes down to every country has its own national interests, and there, there's only going to be so much that the countries are willing to do. Um, so, uh, but I, but that said, it, the India-U.S. relationship has has really come a long way, um, not only in the last twenty years, but even in the last ten years, with with all of the foundational agreements that that have been signed, uh, the defense foundational agreements that have been signed um, in terms of defense trade and and the sale of major platforms. It's it's really quite significant. So if you look at naval cooperation in particular, what is the extent of it? Are, are the U.S. and China wargaming? Uh, because, of course, the U.S. always focuses on freedom of navigation, particularly uh, in Asia, just as China has been encroaching. And so uh, are, are U.S. personnel kind of mirroring uh, Indian personnel on, on naval ships? Are they having how deep would you kind of characterize the cooperation as? I think if we're talking about naval cooperation, that that is Navy to Navy cooperation has really led the way in terms of overall U.S. India defense and security cooperation. So yes, you have the the U.S. and India uh, undertaking exercises together, uh, bilateral exercises, um, also um, on a multilateral basis as well. Uh, but there's definitely a lot of exercise cooperation. The the defense foundational agreements that I mentioned, those are the U.S. and U.S. insists on signing those with countries. Um, but operationally, there is the the, the ability for these these countries' uh, ships to be repaired uh, and refueled. Um, also, uh, the uh, platforms in terms of defense trade, uh, the P8I is essentially an anti-submarine um, warfare uh, platform and uh, monitoring platform. Um, so, um, and, and also, uh, there's the aircraft carrier technology working group. So, there, there's a, a lot going on in terms of U.S.-India naval cooperative opportunities. It's, it's really led the way in, in among all the military services in, in advance. The, the wider strategic relationship. Given the shifting dynamics, as we you know talked about with sort of China's influence in the region and so on, and I guess this convergence of interests of the U.S. and India and these you know cooperate these uh, instances of cooperation between the U.S. and India, do you think that that cooperation could possibly give way to a more formal alliance? quote-unquote, between the U.S. and India. I mean, we know India has been very much all about non-aligned, but, but perhaps do you think like that could happen at some point in the future as sort of competition with China intensifies? Do you think that the U.S. government believes that it can make India an ally? And I mean, per, on the other sort of side of that coin, do you think the Indian government would consider it like a more formal alliance? Based on what Indian officials say, I don't think it's likely. India really makes it clear that it's it's never going to be a treaty ally to the U.S. And it, relations are really just soaring, even in the absence of any kind of formal treaty alliance. 
So I, I think that shows that you actually can be deep partners. India is a major defense partner to the U.S. without actually signing on the dotted line. So with that, Red, I just want to bring up the Quad, just because that's kind of the most recent manifestation of cooperation between crucial states in Asia, of course, the US, India, Australia, and Japan. And so while they, they it's not a security alliance, it's not, there's no formal agreement um, similar to like NATO, where you have security guarantees, but there are these commitment areas, and one of which is a free and open Indo-Pacific. And so with the deepening of these informal relationships, the Quad in particular, uh, do you think that you know there there may be a situation in which uh, India and and other countries in this region may begin to realize that more formal relations could be beneficial, not necessarily from the security standpoint, but again, I know you know as you mentioned, right, the, the Indian government has demonstrated its disinterest in formal alliances, but I mean, is there? Is that a wide-held belief within the population, right? Do they want stronger U.S. relationships? Do they want to open up Indian foreign policy to other partner countries? Um, I, I think in terms of the, the population, there, there's the historical memory and suspicion of the U.S. during the Cold War. So I... I guess without looking at a survey data of the population, I would imagine that signing a treaty alliance with the U.S. would not be a, a popular idea. Uh, but since foreign policy is conducted essentially by by the elite, by government officials, um, what we're hearing, what we've been consistently hearing is an aversion to a, a formal treaty alliance with the U.S. But operationally, uh, we are seeing a lot of fruit uh, that has been born of, of this, this deeper relationship uh, between the U.S. and India. And, and I think China has certainly been a driver of that. So then I guess, uh, does the future of the Indian Ocean, of U.S. policy in the Indian Ocean, does it look bilateral with India or will it inherently be multilateral and not necessarily multilateral with the focus on uh, the smaller states, but, you know, through a quad type system, perhaps bringing in other, you know, larger countries? That's a good question. I, I think that U.S. policy really needs to operate on multiple tracks. The bilateral dimension is very important because you you need to uh, develop ties with a particular country um, in terms of India. Uh, India is such a dominant player in the Indian Ocean region. So that that is that really does need to be built up between US officials and Indian officials. But you can have effects on a multilateral basis. The Malabar exercise that that used to be a bilateral US India naval exercise, but but India permitted the inclusion of Japan to be permanently part of that exercise. So now officially it's it's a trilateral. And then late last year, we saw the inclusion again of Australia after many years of, of not being allowed to participate to where actually all four quad countries came together in, in that exercise. Um, and then most recently we saw the, the French exercise, La Perouse, in the Bay of Bengal. Uh, so it's essentially the quad countries plus France. So there's, there's a lot of, uh, I think you need to have these policies operating along multiple dimensions because they're, they're essentially 
different venues and ways of cooperating. There's also regional infrastructure uh, in terms of like the Indian Ocean Rim Association. Um, the U.S. became a dialogue partner to IORA. Um, it, it plays a role in the, the Indian Ocean Naval Symposium by attending uh, and participating in those, those meetings. So I think uh, that you have to think bilaterally uh, as well as in terms of minilaterally in terms of these small groupings of countries and then also formal regional architecture like IORA or IONS. So if we look at the region, I'm sure there, each country has their own security challenges that they'd prioritize. But um, you know, given the state of the world, I, I'm sure that every country can maybe agree upon certain security challenges in particular, whether they're nation state challenges like China or maybe the, the India-Pakistan conflict, uh, or they might be issue areas such as climate change or resource scarcity. And so if you were to kind of look at the region more broadly, what, uh, what five challenges, and you don't have to name five in particular, but what are the leading challenges in your mind for the region? I think first is are really non-traditional security challenges. I don't think they get as much attention as like China, US rivalry does in this region, but I think it should because there, there's always this, this refrain for in terms of natural disasters striking the region. It's not a matter of if, but when. So you see recurring cyclones in the Bay of Bengal. You see cyclones all the way out as far as the, the Western uh, Indian Ocean and countries like Mozambique requiring disaster relief. Uh, and then you mentioned climate change as well, essentially long-term impacts to these countries that have all kinds of downstream uh, impacts and implications on the populations and migrations of populations. So I, I think these non-traditional security issues, issues that really defy state-based conceptions of security, I think they don't get as much attention as they should. And the Indian Ocean is just is just a region where you just you just see those issues uh, just uh, with a lot of regularity and high salience. Piracy used to be a very big challenge to the region, and it really took a lot of countries and the private sector coming together to to address that. Uh, so fortunately, those incidents in the Western Indian Ocean are significantly down. But it, it really that 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 was another non traditional security challenge that that was really uh, confronting the region as, as a crisis. So I, I think those issues deserve more attention. Um, and then, of course, just managing uh, this this state based traditional security rivalries, whether it's China or India or the U.S., just making sure those those don't. Uh, those don't assume more importance than, than they should. Certainly. And as you know, we wrap up this interview, uh, I mean, the South Asian region, the Indian Ocean region, it's a very dynamic region. As our audience, you can probably tell from the course of this interview. I mean, just yesterday, President Biden announced that we are doing a full you know, drawdown of troops from Afghanistan. People don't often think of Afghanistan as being in South Asia. Perhaps they cluster over the Middle East. But Afghanistan is in South Asia. It's right next to Pakistan. And it has certainly shaped how our policy towards uh, Pakistan has sort of gone. And our policy towards Pakistan has certainly shaped how our policy towards India has sort of gone. And I guess we're starting to see changes in these relationships and so on. Our relationship with Afghanistan, Pakistan, India, so on, especially as China is sort of coming into the picture. So does the US does it have a long-term strategy for the Indian Ocean? 
Is there a long game being played with diplomatic outreach, economic inroads, and other sorts of political activities that are taking place, uh, not just with India, but with all of these smaller countries and so on? If we're talking about the larger region, I would probably say not. I, I feel like as an analyst, I've seen a lot of attention place to India, which is justifiable and, and makes a lot of sense, but not really a coherent regional strategy. There has been a lot of discussion about the Indo-Pacific strategy, but I would argue that's mostly focused on the Pacific side of things as opposed to your question, which is asking about a, an Indian Ocean strategy. So I think that's that's an area that has you know, at least we don't see evidence of, of a lot of thought put behind to what the U.S.'s Indian Ocean strategy should be. And, and that may be the result of bureaucratic divisions of labor at the State Department, in the Department of Defense, that that could be contributing factors to it. But I don't I don't think that we're at the point where we can actually identify a a long-term coherent Indian Ocean strategy. Um, but that said, we've seen, like you mentioned, the region is dynamic. So we've really seen just over the last decade, this, this evolution and of articulation of U.S. interests in the region. The U.S. had talked about its interest being in the Asia Pacific. And then as this relationship with India intensified, uh, U.S. officials started talking about U.S. interest in the Indo-Asia Pacific. And then that gradually morphed to U.S. interest in the Indo-Pacific. So even in U.S. policy documents over the, the past decade, we, we've seen the, the United States essentially reconceiving of what its interests are across this wide region. Uh, so I, I think it's it's very much a, a work in progress because the region is dynamic and events certainly involving China continue to to shape the equation. So it's it's still very much to be determined. One last brief follow-up to that. Do we need a long-term strategy? I guess it's my last question. Do we need one? That's a good question. It's. I think it's certainly good to have an assessment of where a particular region falls within the the United States' larger global priorities, because the U.S. Uh, certainly has higher priorities, I would argue, than the Indian Ocean. Um, so it's, you know, may maybe it's not necess necessary to have a, a fully fleshed out Indian Ocean strategy, but I think it is it is useful to, to essentially situate where the Indian Ocean lies in terms of what the U.S. overall has on its plate and, and what its objectives are and what it actually wants to achieve. But, but that said, I think the U.S. still sees the Indian Ocean region as important uh, and certainly is committed to the, the stability and the security of the region. Uh, I just I think there, there are higher, higher priorities for the U.S., like the Pacific. And on that note, Nalanthi, I wanted to thank you for joining us today. It was a wide-ranging and very interesting conversation, so we appreciate it. I know our listeners will enjoy your insights and analyses. And uh, we will have all of Nalanthi's work linked in the episode description. Once again, Nalanthi, thank you very much. Thanks so much, Ryan and Andre. To hear other fascinating conversations, subscribe to the podcast and follow us on social media at BurnBagPod. Thank you for listening. This is the Burn Bag Podcast.